Mustafa and Ken here. Welcome back to the Alert Medic One podcast. Alert Medic One response. Welcome to the Alert Medic One podcast. It is a shock index episode. Today we are joined by a very special guest, Josh Cook. Josh, do you want to uh, introduce yourself? Yeah, uh, so I'm a paramedic here in um, Maryland. I've been doing this whole shebang since about 2007 when I got my EMT. Uh, I got my paramedic back in 2015 and 2016 in Texas when I was there with the Army. Um, right now I look, work for a department in the Metro DC area as a paramedic firefighter and teaching our paramedic program. What I like about you, Josh, is like me, you don't say where you work for. So <laughs> we're, uh, we're on equal ground here. <laughs> we're doing well. <laughs> so let me ask you a question. Also, by the way, my name's Ken Sander. We'll be joined by Moose here shortly. Uh, however, I have a question for you, Josh. If you could do one thing, specific thing, to improve EMS as a profession, what would you do? And it can't be, we'd make more money, we'd get better hours. You have to tell me how specifically you would accomplish that. Ken, that is a loaded question. Yes, it is. <laughs> I just put you in the hot seat. I have an answer, but I want to hear yours first. Um, Honestly, and this this may not come as a surprise it's because of what's going on in our profession now and what one of the big topics, I think, is expanding our education. Okay. Bringing about uh, that higher education level, um, whether it's requiring an associate's or even going as high as a bachelor's degree for paramedics. Um, and maybe that filtered down into EMTs and so on and so forth. Um it would bring a level of understanding and a level of knowledge to the profession that we don't have um, throughout the profession. It's, it's located in certain areas, but it's not widespread. Uh, it would allow people to have maybe a better understanding of not only their job as a paramedic, but how to write a report, uh, basic English, some math, some understanding of other things within uh, whatever area of study they decide to go with. Um, how do we get there is even bigger. It's an even bigger loaded question. Uh, there's a lot of things that are hindering it and a lot of things that are helping it along though. So, Yeah, no, I actually completely agree with you because my answer, which is pretty much in the same vein as what you said, is that I would do away with the entire certificate program for paramedics and make it an associate's degree minimum. So I, I think we, we have some common ground there. And I think especially with the idea that the NREMT is throwing out there about getting rid of accreditation, I think I, I just I think that's a step backwards. You know, we talk about things like better pay and stuff. We talk about equity with nursing. How do we do that if we don't hold ourselves to the same standard? I agree with you on that one. Um, 
the lack the the recent move by the National Registry to take away this uh, accreditation rule, while it may help in some ways, I think it's going to hurt our profession overall in a bigger way. Um, you're going to see uh, you're going to see programs sprout up. But that's the problem. These programs are going to sprout up through private agencies, through uh, small community fire systems, EMS systems that are not going to be tied to a community college or a four-year program. And they're going to create whatever rules they want that they think will produce something or someone probably in the quick way and not in the short and quality way or long and quality way. Um, yeah, it's, it, I don't think it's going to do great things for that, that progression of our profession within higher education and that equity that you talk about with nursing. You know, we, we are looked at as a profession. We're allied health, but people don't see us as equals, especially paramedics when it comes to our equal of the people that inter we interact with every day, nurses. Uh, we hold a lot of the same abilities and skills and knowledge, but because the nurse has an associate's or a bachelor's that's tied to their position, their um, rank or whatever it is within their uh, agency, that gives them a certain level of standing. Whereas we have NRP or paramedic at the end of our name, not a bachelor's or associate's tied to that. Uh, I, I say this as um, someone that only has a certificate of paramedicine. Uh, recently, I was able to upgrade, you know, to a bachelor's of emergency health services. But still, I think as a paramedic, we need to be looking at higher education, like you brought up. I think you are completely correct. It's a it's a very hard topic for people to talk about because people get very passionate about it. Because for so long, you know, you go back to the seventies, EMS was basically. You take a couple classes, you go ride the ambulance, you get to do a lot of cool stuff. And now, I mean, you look at the stuff we do, you know, we're giving complicated medications, we're intubating people, we're doing chest decompressions, some places are doing chest tubes, we're doing cardiac pacing, cardioversion, we're running cardiac arrests, we're pronouncing people dead in the field, and based on what? What do we have to back that up? A 160-hour uh, class for the EMTs and, what, a 1,200-hour total paramedic program? Right. I think that's what the national standard is, is 1,200, Yeah, if I remember correctly. Um, we don't have that. We don't have the substantiation behind it at times. Um, something that had, was brought to me at, from my father, who is a former paramedic and now PA, uh, was the differentiation between a uh, CRT here in Maryland or an EMTI elsewhere in the United States, if you still are somehow, um, and a paramedic. And the difference was the knowledge behind what we're doing as a paramedic, the skills and medications we're giving, what it does to the human body. You know, the, both the positive and negative reactions and what we can expect to see in our course of treatment. Well, as it stands right now, a lot of these programs, you barely get that in a paramedic program because you're not taking A&P. You're not being required to take other classes that are going to help you understand why you're doing and how you're doing it and what it's going to do and what you expect to see. 
Um, and if we if we're going to be expected to be able to do that stuff and have the respect of our fellow peers in medicine, I think we need to have the education there to be able to do that. Yeah, you're, you're completely right, Josh. When you look at where the healthcare system is and where people fall into it, basically everybody is required to have an advanced degree except for EMS. And the real shame of it is that when you look at what's ent entailed in a paramedic program and the amount of knowledge you have to get, I mean, it is degree worthy. And the fact that we're not pushing four degrees is a disservice to the vast majority of the people going through paramedic programs right now, in my opinion. You know, I, I work at a, like you, I work at a local community college, and we have a degree track for our paramedic program. Very, very few people follow through on that. And it is a crying shame. You could go through the paramedic program, take five or six gen ed classes, and have an associate's degree in EMS, and you don't do it? Yeah. Like to me, and now part of that, part of that falls to me also on the operational programs as a as a problem as well, because I think if we want to better the profession, I think there should be some insensitive Oh God, I can't talk. Ins Incentivization—that's the word I'm looking for—for for getting a college degree. Whether that be a bonus if you have a college degree or a requirement for a college degree to advance in your department, these are both things that are feasible and reasonable, in my opinion, that we could do as a profession. I complete, completely agree with that. And it's funny that you, you bring up the compensation and promotion within your department uh, it was recently within the past month in a talk I had with someone I, I indirectly work for uh, from our academy about how, how do we get people to want to do better in EMS and be better in EMS and get these degrees and be preceptors and grow their knowledge base compensation. Yeah. Um, my department does not compensate for degrees. Others do across the nation. Um or add in something to your your monthly, your daily, your hourly, whatever it is, uh, to give you that incentive to hey, go get that bachelor's, go get that master's. You know, someone within that same office said, oh, you got your bachelor's now. How about your master's? Well, I don't have no incentive within my department to go get my master's and spend the money to get my master's. Yep. Um, now, if there was some drive, then yes. But there is no drive for that higher level of education in many departments and many agencies right now. Uh, and I think if we were to say, if you come in as a bachelor degree or just an associate's degree holding paramedic, we will pay you X amount money extra an hour. Uh, I think that would drive people to get those six or seven extra classes at your community college or for me, it was going to be one more class to get my associates. Now, I had a little some other circumstances with the Army, but one more class, I would have had associates instead of certificate. And I took that class in Texas. In Texas, that means you're a, uh, I can't remember the exact term, but basically a gold paramedic. There's two different types of paramedics 
in Texas. There's a licensed paramedic and a paramedic. And the licensed paramedic has a gold uh, encircling of their patch on the outer edge to say that they're a licensed paramedic. Does it mean anything? Not really. Does it mean more money? Not always. But it does show a difference from a degree-holding and a non-degree-holding paramedic within the state of Texas. Sometimes even something as simple as that can be an incentive for people. They're just for the ego boost, you know. <laughs> but, um, you know, I'm lucky in, in my department. I guess I don't know if I, I should say lucky, but there is some incentive to get higher education because you cannot promote without college credit. So there is some incentive there. And not to change the subject, but you brought up the word preceptor. So I kind of want to know what you think makes a good preceptor. Oh, what makes a good preceptor? That's That's been a hot topic right now in my inbox. Uh, <laughs> so I, I am working and improving our preceptor program at my department. Um, we've been having some issues with retaining, getting new preceptors, and, and determining what makes a good preceptor. Um, I take a lot of what I think makes a good mentor and preceptor, because that's what you are, you're a mentor as well. Uh, from what I've learned in the military and through my familial connections in life. Um, one, you're there to listen and guide. You're not there to admonish. You're not there to harp on someone all the time. Uh, you're there to provide that guidance, both professionally and personally sometimes, on a call, and to then determine hey, what does this person need to improve on and what do, are they doing well? And to tell them both. Um, and someone that is not quick to anger, but also not someone that's going to be completely uh, uh, like a hermit, I guess you could say, where you're not going to talk to your person. You're just, you're just going to let them do what they do and figure out what they figure out. Every now and then you do have to say, Hey, what do you think we could have done better? Hey, you did great. There's a couple things you missed. What were those things? Let them have some purchase in it and then figure out what it is and let them improve themselves and the whole person over time. Uh, I just had to do that the other day with a student. You know, hey, you did great. That call, you did everything you needed to do. Patient's great at the end. We transferred them over. What's two things you missed? What do you mean I missed? What are two things you miss? And work through it. Don't be like, hey, you did this wrong. You're horrible. Anything like that. Yeah, I think those are great points. I think uh, having been a preceptor myself, and I say having been, because as a supervisor now, I don't do as much precepting anymore. Um, one of the big pitfalls that I see, and I see this as an educator as well, and I'm sure you'll relate to this, is that people want to be the friend of the student. And that, I think, becomes a big roadblock because you become afraid to hurt feelings and afraid to correct and afraid to offer advice. And um, I have seen that in other people before. And especially when you have a long-term student, I think that does become a little bit of an issue. And maybe people are just too sensitive sometimes i don't know you know <laughs> we don't need to have a cultural discussion yeah no nah. but um as a preceptor you are an authority figure you know you're a leader 
you are somebody who is directing the actions of others or at least observing the actions of others and you need to be able to um, do so in an appropriate way that's not only safe for the patient and the student but also educational. One of my favorite examples is intubation. You know, a, a lot of people are like, well, I don't know if I should let the student try the tube, but how's a student ever going to learn if you don't try, let them try the tube? You know, you got to give them a shot, at least one. So we, uh, we recently, within my department, had a uh, clinical practice guideline published saying that we were limited to one intubation attempt and if that fails, to switch to a uh, superglottic airway, King Airways, in our uh, department. Um, it's been met with some resistance, naturally, as, a, as all innovation studies have recently been meet, met with, you know, part, airway, stuff like that. Uh, and we, that was the thing that we raised. We've got students. How are we going to allow them the ability to learn and become better at their innovations without giving them the chance? And that's a big part of being a preceptor is being able to step back and say, I'm okay with not doing this innovation and allowing my student the opportunity to you get this innovation. To. You have to. And I had to do it with my student uh, about I don't know, a month and a half ago. He was the one in charge. He had a bad airway. He's able to work it. And in the end, it was his first field innovation. Yep. And he had a, a tough one to begin with. He finished it out in the end, but it's what you have to do as a precept. Sometimes you have to take that step back and let things go out of your hands, uh, but also be in your hands at the same time. It's it's a weird dichotomy. Sure. So. Yeah, no, I, I completely remember the first time I let a student do an airway that I thought was a bad airway, and I was like, I really shouldn't let this kid and you know, forgive me, but I feel like you get these 18 year old paramedic students and I'm in my mid thirties and it feels like a kid, you yes. know, <laughs> but I shouldn't let this kid try this airway. You know, it was, it was before we, you know, uh, pronounced everybody in asystole and trauma arrest and everything like that. And it was a gunshot to the head and there's blood all in the airway and the student's going to go in, and I'm looking at this airway. I'm like, this is, I should be doing this. Like, this is a bad airway. Like, somebody who knows what they're doing should be doing this. But I let him do it. Mm -hmm. And you know what? He got the airway. And that was invaluable experience for that paramedic student. And they will remember that for the rest of their life. And that is what being a preceptor is all about. It's disassociating yourself from the moment and the oh, I should probably be the one doing this and letting the student do it. Yep. You know, I, you know um, our students have a period of their training where they're called residents. Uh, we okay. have an internship and a residency period. Uh, very uh, clinical sounding and medical sounding. Do they get white lab coats? No, they don't get white lab coats. We are not King County. <laughs> <laughs> Does King County do that? Yes, they. Uh, I think they do. Oh, they, wow. They, it's something about white lab coats. Uh, don't quote me on it. They might have used to. You're on record. This is uh, on record. Who knows? Maybe someone will be listening. King County can tell us we're right or wrong. But so uh, once they get their paramedic card, their NRP and their Maryland card, they are in their residency. Okay. And uh, 
they are in charge. What I tell my residents is your name is the primary patient caregiver, transport and response. I'm the other. You will do everything and I will just let you not kill the patient. I'm an overqualified helper at this point because this is you polishing all that knowledge that you learned over the past six, seven months through our in-house program. Or if you're coming from somewhere else with your paramedic already, we still need to do, you know, three months of this is how we do things in my department. (laughs) Uh, So they are completely in charge. And that's where you have to take that hands off and be like, I have to be comfortable with you doing everything. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, no, no, I like that. You know, I, I like the idea of different levels of students. Um, you know, you basically have your students who have completed the book learning, and then you have your students who are a little more experienced and educated, and they're out in the real world. Not that the, you know, maybe first group of students isn't doing clinicals. Of course they are. Um, but just having a second group of students who's out there, I, you know, like what we call uh, our capstone at the college I work at, you know, mm-hmm. just basically you are, you've learned everything you need to know at the basic level. You'll never know everything you need to know. Hopefully not. <laughs> you've learned everything that we can teach you at the college in terms of your entry level paramedic stuff. You're now in charge. You're now, uh, running the show so uh that kind of brings me to the college thing um i know how we do things at the college i work at i don't know how you do things at the college you work at it sounds like from one of our off-air discussions your college is a little bit different from mine so do you want to give me kind of a rundown of how your program operates sure uh first we are not a college program Okay. Uh, we well, are very number one. Yep. Big difference. <laughs> um, we run an in-house paramedic program through our department. Okay. Um, it is basically a year-round program. Uh, we usually start in the fall, and it is a shift work program. Uh, my department is part of a uh, combination system, so we have volunteers as well, and we also have a volunteer offering for the class. Uh, the shift work classes are on. Two of the shifts, people then, the students are assigned to those shifts if they are already not assigned. Um, They come to class at the academy on their shift, uh, show up at 7. We have our contractually obligated PT time from 7 to 9. And then from 9 to about 4, we do didactic scenarios. Uh, It's a lot of self-learning and online learning during the two days off. Uh, we go from about fall to mid early spring, and uh, during that period, they're called you know having the different names. They're an intern, okay, up to the point that they get a national card and a Maryland card. They're an intern. As soon as they hit their Maryland card, they're a resident. And we just started. Uh, it's a ninety day residency now. Okay, uh, during which as the career students, they will get 640 some odd hours of clinical time on a medic unit, a chase car, or a uh, ALS suppression piece. And at the end, uh, we have what's called a OSCE, which 
for the life of me, I cannot remember what the acronym stands for right now. But basically, it's a uh, it's a board. Uh, you have a paramedic, a duty officer, and the medical director sitting in front of you, and you run a scenario, two scenarios as a team lead, two scenarios as a team member. You get evaluated. Uh, those scenarios have live actors and also mannequins involved. You do all your skills. And it's about being able to be a team leader and a team member. So you can fail your whole thing as a team member because say you let your team leader uh, give the wrong medication or you didn't hit sync on cardioversion. Uh, There's also some downgrade reports involved and some transport decisions. And then from there you get your credentials, whether you pass or not. Okay. And overall it's about a year process. That is really cool. I like that a lot. Um, I have uh, a couple thoughts here. One, I really like the team member, team lead thing. We do something similar at the college I work at with the team member, team lead. Uh, I think that it's very important for a paramedic or an EMT because, you know, we, we talked to both, to be able to function as both team members and team, team leads because that's just an integral part of the profession, right? You're not always going to be in charge and you're not always going to be driving. So you never know what role you're going to have. Uh, certain systems, certainly you may be more likely to not be driving if you're a paramedic, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> uh, number two, I did not realize that the NREMT would accreditate non-college institutions to uh, have paramedic programs. That's pretty cool to me as well. So I believe ours is through, and once again, don't quote me on this, KHEP? Yes. yes, Ours is through KHEP. So KHEP is the uh, institution that is done through uh, COAMPS, or COAMPS is through KHEP. Correct. Um, But that's, that's the recognition that National Registry requires, I believe, to accreditate a program you have to be co-amps KAP certified to run a program so i didn't realize those organizations accredited non-college programs to be paramedic programs so that's pretty cool yes uh, i like that a lot number three my brisket is about three degrees <laughs> away from being done so we're going to wrap up here soon okay we're almost a half an hour anyway um but we can keep talking for a couple minutes. So okay, um, I got a question for you. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so you're a supervisor, allegedly. Allegedly, yes. Uh, do you think, as a supervisor, coming to the scene, you should have a higher, or I mean, obviously, you have the same level of training as the paramedics you're supervising. Right. Do you think, as a supervisor, you should have a higher level of certification or knowledge? As a supervisor, I think you should have a higher level of knowledge. I don't. I will. I, so I think it's a loaded question because where I work, you cannot be a supervisor unless you are an P paramedic. Mm-hmm. So you cannot have a higher level of education or certification than the people you're working with. Do I think an EMTI 99 or CRT in the state of Maryland should be the supervisor showing up on scene? No, would be my answer. Does that answer your question? Somewhat. Okay. So in my department, it, uh, our district officers or duty officers are PEs as well. Okay. Uh, so it, mine comes from 
So I, I'm taking critical care in the fall. Okay. Uh, through uh, University of Florida, because I think if I'm going to be coming to the scene later in my career as a duty officer, I should be able to bring, hopefully, in the next, you know, in the coming years, a higher skill set if we have the ability, and also the knowledge base to be able to in- help inform decisions for my providers on scene. I agree with the higher level of knowledge. I think that's very important. The higher skill set, sills, God. The higher skill set, I would question. We're going to do a Cincinnati on you later. You may need to. Um, I would question that because we we have critical care paramedics, but in the pre-hospital environment and in your jurisdiction, does that add anything to your skill set? Currently, no. Okay, but there's talk. Yes. Okay. I like that. We'll see. So... I would say in that situation, then yes, the supervisor should be the highest level of licensure available. So if you worked in a jurisdiction that recognized critical care paramedics, then to be a supervisor, yes, you should be a critical care paramedic. I I completely can go with that. Um, Would I get my critical care paramedic if that became required where I worked? Yes, I would. Uh, right now, that's not a consideration, so I've never even thought about it yeah. because I don't work private ambulance. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and, and that's part of the state that we live in Yep, you know, and how we do things here. But, yeah, uh, if it expanded, if it legitimately expanded the scope of practice pre-hospital, 100%, yes. Right now... Critical care paramedic, from my ancillary understanding of it, doesn't have a whole lot of impact in the field. I know there are some procedures that are different, but a lot of it is monitoring in-place medications, monitoring chest tubes. You know, there's some stuff in there like RSI. That's great. You know, that 100%. Um but a lot of it is not direct, directly transferable to the field yet. Yet. Could yep. it change? Yes. And I think that ties into, I know we're about a degree off of your uh, your brisket being ready. <laughs> I think that ties back into your original question to me. What, what I want to see improve in EMS and the higher education level could bring new skill sets yep. and new uh, knowledge and abilities to our profession, either locally or nationally. And it should be. There should be a different between a difference between a paramedic who has an associate's degree and a bachelor's degree. There, there should be some sort of tangible, tangible <coughs> change or difference between the two. You know, uh, maybe being an EMT should be a certificate program. Maybe we need to have that discussion. Going back to how we started this discussion. I, I think a, a certain uh, union out there would have uh, issues with certificate EMT programs. I'm sure they would, but I'm not worried about a certain oh, I'm not either. Yeah. I'm, I'm worried about the advancement of the healthcare profession I and agree. The paramedic uh, and EMS you know, programs in general. It's, uh, it's difficult. You know, it's funny you bring that up, and I don't want to go off on another tangent here. But I have often heard about how a certain union is a major hindrance to EMS. And I haven't completely wrapped my head around how that is yet. 
I haven't either. Um, I, I don't know about your local, but I know my local is very pro EMS and has fought for many things for especially the paramedics within our de- department. Mostly compensation, yeah. honestly, but they are pro EMS. Yeah, that's been my experience too with my local, but I wonder if... You know, the national, maybe there's something different going on there because I see people online talk about that and I, I, I haven't quite figured that out, but I can completely see them having an issue with EMT being a certificate program. I 100% can see that issue, yes. um, which is neither here nor there, but this isn't Ken Sanders fantasy EMS <laughs> world. This is how do we make things a little bit better now? Um, but in any case, uh, Josh, do you have any last uh, thoughts or comments before we close out? No, I don't think so. I think uh, we covered everything that was asked. Okay. Sounds good. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening to Alert Medic 1. I hope you have a great night. Please check us out. Facebook, Twitter, our website's coming back up here soon. Uh, we actually have a, a Reddit subreddit now. Uh, nobody is there. So if you hear this and you want to be the first one there to post something, check us out. (laughs) Uh, Thank you, everybody. Have a great day. Be safe. And thank you for listening to Alert Medic 1. You've been listening to the Alert Medic One podcast, the premier emergency medical services podcast with your hosts, Mustafa Sadiq and Ken Sanner.